0: you but it's hard for me to believe that the proceedings which resulted in the impeachment of president trump as well as his acquittal by the u.s senate happened over seven months ago good afternoon i'm jim falk president of the world affairs council of dallas fort worth and i'm joined this afternoon by jeffrey toobin you know him as a cnn senior legal analyst as well as a staff writer at the new yorker his latest book true crimes and misdemeanors the impeachment of donald trump is a real-life legal thriller that draws out personalities and actually puts you, as a fly on the wall, descriptions behind some of the key decisions that shaped the Mueller investigation, the Ukraine story, as well as the impeachment, and then the subsequent trial. But before we start our conversation, let me just remind you that you can purchase a copy of Jeff's book by going to interabangbooks.com. And if you do that, be sure to type in the code DFW World to get that 10% off, not just on true crimes and misdemeanors, but for any books you have in your shopping cart. But that is only for online purchases. I want to especially thank our good supporters at the World Affairs Council, Susie and Jim Raleigh for being sponsors of today's programs, as well as you, our members and audience who may have bought a ticket. We are very, very grateful. And special thanks to the World Affairs Councils of America, as well as the World Affairs Council, or World Affairs San Francisco, and the World Affairs Council of Orange County. If you'd like to keep up with our calendar at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, please go to dfwworld.org. So as I mentioned, Jeffrey Toombin is the senior uh, legal analyst at CNN. He earned both his bachelor's in law degrees at Harvard, and he was also editor of the Law Review. Uh, From there, he became assistant United States attorney in Brooklyn, later working aside independent counsel Lawrence Walsh on the uh, Iran Contra Affair. And from there, he turned to journalism, uh, looking at major cases such as the O.J. Simpson trial, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, which Jeff last brought you to Dallas and Fort Worth, as well as many others. His reporting on the Supreme Court is really exceptional, especially in The New Yorker, where he's written profiles on uh, Justice Roberts, as well as many of the associate justices. And I have to say his book, although written over a decade ago, The Nine, uh, the Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court is really just a fascinating examination of the Supreme Court and will really lead to a much better understanding of how the court operates Jeff, great to see you. I wish you i wish you were in Santa Fe where I am or that we were in Dallas.
1: Uh, Jim, I, I wish I was in Dallas. I, I mean, I love going to Dallas. And I, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for other authors, but for me, it's always a great privilege to go see people in person when I write a book. You know, writing a book is a very lonely business. And I'm always so flattered and pleased to see a nice big crowd of people who want to talk about my book, who want to get autographed copies, and uh, that look, you know, in the scheme of losses uh, from from this pandemic, it's it's a very very small one, but it is um, it it is something I I regret not being able to do. But
0: uh, it's it is is
1: the world that we
0: that we're living in right now. So before we really get into the book, I have to admit that I love listening to The Axe Files. And driving here to Santa Fe, I listened to your interview with David Axelrod. And I have to say, I didn't know the story about your mother. Um, Both your parents were involved in journalism, and your mother was the uh, ABC correspondent. Just tell us a little bit about her
1: well, my mother was, was really, um, she was a great mom, but she was also an extraordinary journalist and really a historic figure in, um, in television news. Uh, she joined ABC News in 1964 at a time when each network uh, had literally one woman correspondent. There was one, you know, Pauline Frederick at CBS, Nancy Dickerson at NBC, and my mother, Marlene Sanders at ABC. Um, she had a five-minute news show in the afternoon for four years, and during that period, she became the first network news correspondent woman uh, to cover the Vietnam War. She was there for six weeks. It was an indelible experience in her life, something she was so glad to have done, as difficult as it was. I was, uh, I was six years old at the time. And um, she went on to be an executive um, at ABC, later became a correspondent at CBS News, um, and you know I, I i grew up in the news business uh, my dad was involved with public television he was bill moore's producer for many years then he was director of news for um, uh, wnet which is the public television affiliate in new york city and um you know i i i i did go to law school and i did practice law for several years but i sometimes think of of my journalism career as coming into my genetic destiny you know my parents they
0: really steered you away from it
1: uh, exactly you know my parents uh, you know th- they understood and i think they were right that news in particular is a very uh, mercurial business um there's no such thing as making partner in uh in journalism I and mean, people people do come and go um law firms being partner is not what it used to be either but that's a that's a separate subject but um I, I, they, they were always worried about, you know, the instability of journalism and um, sort of steered me away from it. But, you know, I think I saw how interesting their lives were and, and how much engaged they were with, with uh, what was going on in the world. I, I always did student journalism as a kid in high school and college. I started freelancing for magazines in law school. So uh, I, I kind of had a foot in both worlds uh, but um, here I am.
0: It's 20, worked out well. 20,
1: 27 years after I started working at The New Yorker. So I think I've pretty much locked in. This is where I'm going to uh, spend my so, time. So, you
0: know, all, all of us or anybody who followed the news over the last two, three years, we certainly know what happened in, in a lot of the facts in your book. But you did such a, a nice job of pulling in news things. And, and you have such uh, legitimacy in your reporting. One of the stories that President Trump continues to say is that Robert Mueller came into his office and essentially begged to be FBI director. And you open up with a different way to interpret what happened in that in the Oval Office. I wonder if we might start with that. I,
1: I mean, I think that's a polite way of saying that Trump has lied about what went on in that office for um, you know for for the entirety of of uh, Mueller's. Mueller's tenure as, as 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 the special counsel i um I opened with that scene because I thought it was a great tableau. I mean, here you have the only time uh, that Donald Trump and Robert Mueller have ever met each other. It was May sixteenth, two thousand and seventeen, the week after um, Trump fired James Comey as FBI Director, and Rod Rosenstein, uh, who was the deputy director uh, Attorney General at the time, he asked Mueller, to give the president advice on who would make a good uh, FBI director, because Mueller had been perceived as a success for 12 years. Now, just in terms of the facts surrounding what went on there, after J. Edgar Hoover died, Congress changed the law so that FBI directors had limited tenure. They could not serve more than 10 years, because Congress didn't want anybody serving as long as, as Hoover did, which was more than 40 years. Congress in an unusual move, uh, unprecedented, uh, extended Mueller's term for two years so that he could continue serving um, under, under President Obama. But that was it. There was a limit, a legal limit on how long Mueller, Mueller could serve. So even if Mueller wanted to be FBI di- director again, he couldn't possibly be because he was barred by federal statute. So the idea that he was begging for his job back is just silly. I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible. But I think it's indicative of you know, tr- the president's attempt to try to portray Mueller as someone with an ax to grind uh, against him. And, and the proximity of dates is really extraordinary because that date was May 16th, 2017. It was the next day. May seventeenth, that um, Rosenstein asked Comey to be the um, to be the FBI director, and that was I mean I'm sorry to be the special counsel investigating um, the 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 2016 campaign. So you know Trump was shocked to, to see him appointed because he said, "Hey, that guy was just here," but he certainly wasn't begging for his job back.
0: So tell us a little bit about the research for this book. Who did you, I mean, you can tell us everybody you talked with, but was it on the record, or off the record?
1: Well, um, this was, I mean, as you mentioned, I've written eight books. This was by far the hardest book uh, that I'd written, just in terms of um, the logistics and the journalistic demands. Uh, In part, that was because, you know, I agreed to write the book almost as soon as Mueller was appointed, But I quickly learned, as all journalists learn, that Mueller and his staff weren't talking to anybody. Um, There were no there were no leaks. There were no interviews. There was nothing coming out of that office. So um, I had to trust that I would get access to uh, Mueller and to, to Mueller's team when he closed up shop. But of course, I didn't know when that would be. Um, it turned out to be more than two years. And, and I did what I could following the investigation, writing New Yorker stories, writing, uh, you know, covering it for, for CNN. But then, of course, uh, much to my surprise, um, the, the, the Ukraine story arose. And that, um, be, became, um, th- that became an impeachment story. And uh, one, one of the things I, I'm pleased about in the book is, is, is I integrate the two stories. And I think people have the mistaken impression that the Russia story and the Ukraine story are really separate. They're, they're not. They're very much the same story. They're the same, many of the same cast of characters involved. The motivation of the president is, is much the same. And um, some of the misconduct uh, is, is very similar. But again, uh-huh. I didn't know when the impeachment story was going to end. Um, and, and obviously I wanted this book to come out before the election. A- and so I was sort of you know flying by, the, flying by the seat of my pants, trying to report. Um, just to answer your question about reporting, I, I did the reporting uh, in the same way that I've done, I think all of my previous books, which is that all of my conversations with sources are on what's called background, which means I could use the information but I couldn't identify the source. That way it doesn't read like uh, a newspaper or magazine article with, you know, lots of uh, according to an informed source. It all just becomes um, a, a, single, um, a, 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 a single narrative. And that, that worked out, I, I thought, very well because there were so many sources. And one of the pleasures of this book, I think, is that you get to see the same events from different perspectives, obviously, a very important perspective is is the the Mueller team's perspective, but I also you know have a lot in there about Trump's legal team, um, first John Dowd and Jay Sekulow, and later of course Rudy Giuliani. Those that that, that store so, so so that's that's that was what I um, you know ha, how I how I did, did the book, find- book. and then of course it ends, and I was able to include the first month or so of of the pandemic, which I think is, you know, while it is not directly related to the other two, I think a lot of what you saw from Donald Trump in the Ukraine and Russia stories, you see in his response to um, the pandemic.
0: Did you find that the Mueller team, given the fact that they were locked down from talking and there were essentially no leaks, were they just jumping at the bit to talk with you to get their story out? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Really?
1: <laughs> Not at all. I had to beg and plead. Um, you know, w- w- one part of journalism that I mean, I, I, I love being a journalist. Um, I love having the opportunity to work in television and magazines and write books. But to be honest with you, Jim, one part of the job, which I really don't enjoy, is trying to get people to talk to me. Uh, I love interviewing them once they're once they're talking, but this whole business of courtship of sources, and and frankly begging is what it amounts to, um, is, is is not something I particularly enjoy. The the I, I was fortunate to speak to several members of of Mueller's team, but I, I certainly would not describe them as uh, anxious or. Uh, chomping at the bit. Can
0: we, can we assume, though, that Robert Mueller, who you were not able to interview for this, did he authorize or turn a blind eye to his team and let them know that it was okay to talk with you? I think that's right. Um,
1: you know, the, the, Mueller was, you know, quite fastidious, I think, most, as most people know, about neither he, neither he nor anyone in his office had any contact with um, the, the news media during his investigation, but once it was over, once the report was filed, once he closed down its office, then I think um, uh, he and his staff recognize that it's part of history, and it, 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 it's worth participating, at least in my version of it.
0: Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ Podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship, or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at, L-E-E-B at dbu.edu. You know, one of the fun anecdotes in the, in the book was how CNN discovered that Roger Stone might have a problem that morning. Uh, by carefully seeing who came in and out of the office, elaborate on that a little bit, because you know, some people uh, said that CNN had an inside source, and it really wasn't that way.
1: No, it was really a, a, a spectacular piece of journalism by, by by my colleagues in the DC bureau uh, of CNN, and it was really it was an act of, of triangulation of lots of different uh, of, of lots of different sources. You know, the, what what my colleagues did there was they monitored the grand jury room. Now, of course, grand jury proceedings are secret, but who walks in and out uh, is not a secret. And uh, if you know the cast of characters well enough, um, the, uh, the, you can identify, at least with some precision, who's being, inter- you know, what, what what subject the grand jury is exploring. And my colleagues at, at, at the, in the DC Bureau, knew that there were lots of witnesses related to the Roger Stone case who came in one after another in this period uh, leading, leading up to the denouement. At the same time, they were monitoring the, um, the, the, the office, uh, the, the Mueller's office in the elevators there, of who was going up and down. They saw back at the grand jury that there were several sessions where it was just the lawyers in with the grand jury. Now, if you know anything about grand, federal grand juries, if the grand jury is being asked to issue an indictment, the lawyers alone, without witnesses, go in there and explain the law and talk about the evidence to the grand jury and ask the grand jurors to vote. So, so the, the CNN journalists thought, well, you know, it's just the lawyers. They must be moving to an indictment of, of Roger Stone. At the same time, they saw one day that one of the prosecutors they knew to be involved with the uh, Roger Stone case, wheeling a suitcase out of the office um, in in DC. So they thought, well, it looks like he's going somewhere and maybe he's going to Florida. Maybe he's going to supervise the the arrest of of, um, Roger Stone. The, 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 so, so, so they arranged for, for a crew to be at Roger Stone's house at, at dawn the following morning. And lo and behold, um, shortly after the crew showed up, they saw, you know, a bunch of vans with guys in FBI, bl- FBI uh, jackets uh, coming coming to bang on the door and arrest Roger Stone. And we got this fabulous uh, video uh, of the arrest. But um, there was no collusion, to coin a phrase, between Mueller and the C- and CNN. It was just really good journalism and, and deduction by by my colleagues. And I so, hasten to add, I had nothing to do with it. They so
0: didn't. one of our viewers, Paula, asks, Are we just going to talk about process, or do you want to discuss content? Yes, Paula, we're going to discuss <laughs> content. And let me also say that I'm seeing some. For the first time, and maybe it's the subject we're discussing some inappropriate language and we're trying to l- delete that as quickly as possible. And we apologize for that. Did if,
1: I, did I say something?
0: <laughs> Absolutely not, but something is popping up from a few of our no, it's definitely not from you.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, uh, I think gosh. it shows the I, I, time I, we're
0: living in, and we have some truth. I, I, I
1: apologize, no. I'm ready to apologize because I have been known to use inappropriate language. No, it's definitely uh, it not I from you. You did not
0: word. use this language, I promise you. Okay. Um, what was the first act that motivated the FBI to open up an investigation?
1: Well, this, this is a, uh, a, a, a highly controversial subject and, and the subject of uh, a, 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 an investigation that William Barr uh, ordered um, and, and, is, and presumably will come out before the election. Uh, based on uh, everything I know, uh, I'll tell you exactly what the beginning of the FBI investigation was. Uh, it was in the summer of 2016, Um, it was um, uh, right after the um, uh, WikiLeaks released uh, the hacked uh, DNC emails on the eve of the Democratic National Convention. Um, That that was a very serious breach and uh, a big piece of news and very damaging to Hillary Clinton because those emails revealed that people in the Democratic leadership uh, were uh, appeared to be leaning on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton against uh, Bernie Sanders. Right around that time when, um, when that hack was revealed, um, an Australian diplomat named Alexander Downer uh, came forward um, and through channels went to the FBI and said, you know, I didn't think much of this, um, but at the time, but in the spring of 2016, I had a conversation with this guy George George Papadopoulos, who, who, who portrayed himself correctly as a um, as a uh, member of the Trump um, uh, campaign staff, a foreign policy advisor, and he told me that the the Russians were were going to hack the the DNC. And lo and behold, it, now, it's, now it's happened. And so it was a result of Papadopoulos' uh, approaching, uh, the, the, the Alexander Downer, this, this Australian diplomat, telling the FBI, you know, you may have a problem here because somebody had advance notice, it, 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 it appears. That's what started the investigation. That's, that's what I have always heard started the investigation. Now, some of the controversy that, that has arisen, uh, involves the, the famous slash infamous Steele dossier, which was a, a report commissioned by a group with, with, from, from, the, from the Clinton campaign about the ties between Russia and, uh, and the Trump campaign. Uh, Christopher Steele is a former um, British secret, secret intelligence operative. Right,
0: but who did he work for?
1: Well, see, again.
0: That's, that's where it gets confusing in your work. Well, Less more let me, complicated I, than it I really.
1: as, as my dad liked to say, to make a long story unbearable, this is, this is what happened. During the Republican primaries, a, um, a, 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 a group of Republicans um, who were never Trumpers hired this in, in, investigative agency called GPS um, Fusion. <laughs> to do research on Donald Trump, to, to go back into his history and see if there was something that would disqualify him. These were Republican operatives who, 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 who hired GPS Fusion. When it became um, clear that Trump was going to be the Republican nominee, this group dropped out. The folks at GPS Fusion, which, who are led by a pair of former Wall Street Journal reporters, they said, well, what are we gonna do with all this? Maybe we can sell our, our, our expertise in Trump to the Democrats. And they went to uh, Perkins Coie, which was a law firm that represented the Clinton campaign the Democratic Party and said, do you want us to continue our work for you? And they said, yes. They said, yes, continue doing your work. It was at that point that GPS Fusion hired Christopher Steele to do this research. But, but the, and, and, and he came up with this dossier of, of some, some accurate, some inaccurate, some salacious information about Donald Trump in the fall of 2016. During that period, Steele shopped that around to a bunch of journalists and said, look what I found but no journalist actually published anything about it in leading up to the campaign because they leading up to the election because they felt they couldn't verify anything anything from it after Trump wins the election it, the, the, um, the first BuzzFeed um, re- re- revealed it but the, the important point is that you know one of the, the things that that Mueller's critics and, and the FBI's critics have said, was that somehow the Steele dossier was the, was the um, origin of the FBI investigation and the Mueller investigation. And it just clearly was not. I mean, that, that's just not, the, the, the chronology didn't work that way.
0: Now, one of our viewers, Gary, asks, did the Clintons pay money, uh, d- does the author address, Clintons paying $12 million for the uh, Steele dossier? No,
1: they didn't it, pay anywhere near that amount of money.
0: What did they, did they pay? I,
1: I don't remember what the exact, what, I, I don't, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it couldn't possibly be 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 that much money. So
0: take a minute and, and describe in your view, really, how Mueller in a sense was held hostage by his own concept of what his job was. Being special counsel versus being an independent counsel, which Ken Starr was.
1: Right. This is an, this is an important difference that I don't think uh, a lot of people realize is, um, you know, th- there used to be a law called the Ethics and Government Act um, that had a provision that said there can be independent counsels appointed by a three-judge panel uh, who operated really independent of the Department of Justice. And, and Lawrence Walsh, who I work for, uh, was an independent counsel, Kenneth Starr was an independent counsel, and they really had nothing to do with the, the Department of justice that law there were a lot of problems with that law Congress, I think, with bipartisan agreement, let the law expire so there was no there's no such thing as independent counsels anymore, but there is a provision for a special counsel and in 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 that circumstance, you have um, the Department of Justice appointing, in essence, a subordinate, someone who works for the Department of Justice but operates independently. Star uh, uh, Mueller was a special counsel. He was appointed by Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, who was in charge of this matter because Jeff Sessions, the uh, Attorney General, uh, recused himself because he had he had been involved in in the campaign and. Um, the, um, uh, so, so it's, you know, Robert Mueller was and is an institutionalist. He is someone who has devoted his career to being part of teams, whether it's the Marine Corps or the FBI or the Department of Justice. And he took seriously the idea that he was a subordinate of the Department of Justice. And he was given a mandate. But he didn't want to expand that mandate, in part because he didn't think it was proper, but also because, you know, he, he didn't, th- he also didn't want to take forever, five years the way Starr did. So he, um, you know, he had a narrow conception uh, of his mandate. And um, he also didn't want to pick fights with the president. And, and that led, I think, to two of his biggest mistakes as, as special counsel, which is failing to subpoena the president, but also uh, failing to uh, issue a report that was uh, spelled out clearly that the president obstructed
0: justice. So, the mandate is, is, is from your book was it this limited, links to or between the campaign and Russian government and individuals?
1: And any, any cases arising out of that investigation. There were two parts, and both parts are important. But, but you, know, you read correctly that was the mandate. But that mandate did not include Donald Trump's finances, his tax returns. Now, it is possible Mueller could have gone back to to, to Rosenstein and said, um, "You are, uh, you, you are could, can I do this additional investigation?" But well, he didn't do that, and I think I understand why. I don't think it, I, I think that wouldn't have been the right thing to do. So,
0: what type of communication was there between, say, the Southern District of New York? where you saw some of these cases pop up. And, well, and-
1: Mueller turned over jurisdiction in several of these cases. Michael Cohn, the, the investigation of, of um, Donald Trump's personal attorney went to the Southern District because Mueller felt that was not within his original jurisdiction. Again, I don't think every prosecutor would have made that same judgment, I think, but I think that shows how Mueller was not trying to you know, bring down Donald Trump. He was trying, to do his limited mandate, and he felt Cohn was not within uh, that jurisdiction. Now, um, the the, the Southern District prosecutors um, were also aware of something that got a lot of attention during this period. um, The Department of Justice policy that said Uh, sitting presidents will never be indicted by the Department of Justice. That is against Department of Justice policy. I happen to think that policy is correct. I don't think there is any way under our constitutional system that a a sitting president of the United States can also be uh, a a criminal defendant. However, um, and for that reason, the Southern District investigated Michael Cohen, but they didn't investigate Donald Trump. They too did not go after Trump's tax returns or his financial records because they knew even if they found something, they couldn't, they, they couldn't indict him.
0: Do you think, uh, and David asks this, do you ever think we will see Trump's tax returns? Well, the New York state attorney who has them, will they ever be released?
1: Well, I do think that um, the, the Manhattan district attorney, Cyrus Vance, who won his case, in the Supreme Court at the end of last term, he will get to see them. I, I, I you know, there, there is some post-Supreme Court skirmishing going on, but I have no doubt um, that uh, Vance is going to win that case and he will see them. He will see them for a secret grand jury proceeding, um, which means they will not be publicly disclosed as a matter of course. Now, it is possible if Vance finds a prosecutable case, he will um, you know, bring it to trial and some of those documents will be released in the course of the trial because trials are public. But um, if that happens, and I have no idea whether it'll happen, it'll be long after the election of 2016. And so to answer the question a lot of people are curious about, Will the public see Trump's tax returns or his financial records before the 2016 election? The answer to that is clearly no.
0: Um, I want to talk about uh, Rudy Giuliani and his role because that's you, you really show him as a hero at one point and then not so in, at another stage. But before we do that, uh, Chuck Eisman asks, uh, what's your best estimate of the result of the Durham investigation? Will anyone be charged?
1: I, I, I just don't know. I, I, I you know, the, what's clear is that uh, his jurisdiction does include uh, possible criminal offenses, but uh, John Durham is a, is a respected U.S. attorney. Um, there have been no leaks coming out of the investigation. It's not even clear to me that he's impaneled a grand jury. Uh, which you would need for uh, a criminal case. There there certainly will be some sort of written report, and Attorney General Barr all but said that the report will be uh, made public uh, before the election. And, uh, but, but whether there are criminal charges or not, I, I, honest to goodness, just have no idea.
0: Well, let's talk about Rudy Giuliani, because you really give him in, in my view, I was surprised by the credit he got uh, for how he assisted President Trump at one point, and in, in particularly yeah. about not being subpoenaed. You know, I, I, I you know,
1: maybe it's because I'm a New Yorker and he was the mayor uh, in New York <laughs> for so long. I mean, I, I just loved writing about Rudy Giuliani because he's such a colorful and at times really bizarre character. I was fortunate to write a profile of him during the middle of all this, so I had a lot of, I had a lot of access to him. Um, that's right. He, I think, he did an effective job um, on the Mueller investigation. I think, as as you say, he stretched out the negotiations over uh, the subpoena to such a point that Mueller felt he was out of time and he had to settle for this really uh, inferior uh, form of um, investigation, which was written questions and answers just about the campaign, which. You know, were 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 basically written by two of the other Trump lawyers, Jane and Marty Raskin from Miami, and and they were designed uh, to provide as little information a, as possible. In addition, and and this is a you know a more controversial matter, but I think, you know, Giuliani's sometimes bizarre and excessive television appearances did serve the purpose of turning Robert Mueller into a political figure and basically um, tarnishing him as sort of just another Democrat who, who hired just a bunch of angry Democrats who were anxious to get Trump. And I don't think that's a fair characterization, but what you saw is, you know, when, when, when Mueller was appointed, he was really universally praised as someone who was fair, but Mueller, but, but Giuliani's attacks really turned him into a, um figure of of you know the political moment and uh that really damaged Mueller, and that damaged his public standing i think it damaged his leverage over witnesses and and, and so i think that was that that was effective so so that's the the the, the russia side of the
0: story before As you I mean, go to ukraine though wait before you go to ukraine okay. um President Trump had indicated several times, yeah, it's fine, I'd like to be deposed. And they had already scheduled a meeting at Camp David in January, but then that was canceled. Who advised the president not to, to sit down for that deposition? Or well, was that
1: ultimately deposition? It, was, uh, it was John Dowd at the time, Jay Sekulow felt the same way. And, and look, anyone who knows Donald Trump's relationship with the truth knew that it was a terrible idea to uh, let him speak under oath to 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 Mueller's investigators, you know, uh, I, I th- that, that it, it would have been a suicide mission, and um, I, I that that's why the business of delaying the the interview into oblivion was such an important service that these lawyers provided. Uh, it, you know, it was it was Dowd who pulled the trigger on the who who, who pulled the plug. On the January two thousand sixteen, uh, to the January two thousand eighteen interview, and it was it was Giuliani who kept uh, who took over in the spring of two thousand eighteen, who who strung it out over the rest of the year.
0: Let's jump into Giuliani and in Ukraine because that's a different story.
1: It's an entirely different story, and I think you know
0: what
1: what you know th- what you saw in both Giuliani and Trump. Was hubris because he got away with um, the, um, the, the the Russia investigation. I mean, he saw that Mueller, you know, did not um, succeed in, in 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 pinning criminal activity on him or starting an impeachment proceeding. But instead of leaving well enough alone, Giuliani started this mad project with these two really marginal figures, Lev Parnas uh, and, and his friend Igor. And they you know, started coercing the government of Ukraine, an American ally, to investigate the Bidens because the president thought, correctly, that Biden was a very important rival of his in the 2020 election. And Giuliani's ham-handed, clumsy, arguably improper, if not illegal actions in Ukraine, set the stage for the impeachment of the president. I mean, he got his client impeached, which is not something I think any lawyer in history could say or certainly would want to say. Now, Trump, of course, uh, did this to himself, but he only did it because Giuliani gave him the, the, the opportunity and the vehicle to do it.
0: I'm seeing a a number of questions about, um, crowd strike in, in Ukraine. Um, sort of, tell us how that, that story has been, or promoted by the, um, Sean Hannity and others.
1: I mean, it's just amazing to me that, um, this story, uh, lives on. I mean, it, it has been discredited so many different ways, but, um, after the DNC, Um, was hacked, they hired this American company called CloudStrike to do a kind of a forensic examination of their computers to figure out what the hell happened. Why were we hacked? What went on here? Somehow the story came out, you know, through right-wing media, that CloudStrike was a Ukrainian company, that CloudStrike shipped those servers back to Ukraine, and that Ukraine was somehow involved in the, the hacking, not Russia. None of that is true. It's been disproven any number of times. But, but the president, including when he was standing side by side in Helsinki with, with Vladimir Putin, you know, raised the issue uh, of cloud strike. But I mean, it did not, I mean, n- nothing happened with cloud strike related to Uh, the hacking. This was all part of this conspiracy theory to prove that Ukraine actually did the hacking as opposed to uh, Russia. But you need only read the Mueller report or read the report of the, um, the, the, the intelligence agencies, which showed in detail just exactly how the hacking was done. Uh, It it was done by Russian military intelligence. It was an extraordinary piece of investigating, largely by Mueller, where he showed day by day how the hacking took place. But this cloud strike story has stayed out there um, for reasons that, you know, remain mysterious to me. And and
0: staying on Ukraine, and I know you covered this in, in quite a bit of detail in the book. Gary says, regarding Ukraine, does the author address Biden's withholding one billion dollars unless the prosecutor who was investigating his son Hunter, for legal dealings was fired?"
1: Uh, no. I mean it, 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 th- th- there was a national, an international policy that um, that, um, th- th- that this prosecutor, uh, under the, the president before Zelensky was corrupt. Everyone wanted to get rid of him. The European Union, the uh, United Nations, the the American government. And Biden went to Ukraine and said, we we want to get rid of him, and you're not going to get our aid unless you get rid of him. This was a policy. um, It was an open policy. It wasn't like some secret deal. It had nothing to do with his son. His son wasn't even under investigation at, at that point. So, so the notion that this was some sort of deal to protect Hunter Biden is just simply not true.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about how the Mueller report was released, because in a sense, that's another area where the Mueller team was outplayed really by Attorney General Barr.
1: Um, in, in, in very dramatic fashion. And, and this, this is a story I, I, I tell. Uh, in, in the book. You know, as I say, um, Mueller kind of tied himself in knots not to reach a conclusion about whether the president committed obstruction of justice. Um, he, he felt like he couldn't offer a definitive word. Um, the um, the, the, the um, a, a, And so he, he came up with this very confusing... You know, I'm not exonerating him, but I'm not convicting him. I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying he didn't. And he turned that over to... Yeah, if I could
0: just read that sentence sure, from yeah. page 302. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment accordingly. While this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. And then you go on and try to explain that convoluted language.
1: Well, I, I, I try to explain that convoluted language, and I'm not sure I, I, I succeeded. But um, it is um, it, it is um, it, it, it was a mistake not not to come out and just say what the evidence showed, but but by but by leaving this ambiguous and letting Barr make the announcement by himself he let Barr sabotage the report. He let Barr say, based on my cursory review, I think there were no crimes found here. I don't think that's justified by the facts. I don't think that's what the report shows, but Mueller, the institutionalist that he is, trusted that, uh, Mueller, that, that, that Barr would deal with him in a, in a straightforward fashion. And I think he didn't realize what a partisan uh, Bar, Bar had become. Bar
0: gave him a chance to review the letter.
1: Bar gave him a chance to review the letter. And, you know, this is a key moment. And I think it's so interesting how people think. And what happened was, Bar's, de- uh, one of the, one of Bar's deputies went to uh, Aaron Zebley, who was effectively the second in command of, of, of Mueller and said, would you like to review the letter first? And Zebley went to Mueller and they had a conference about this. This was the day that the letter was released and they concluded, well, look, I don't want to vouch for Barr's letter. I don't want Barr to say we approve this letter. So we're not even gonna read the letter. We're not going to express an opinion one way or another. Kind of, I mean, somewhat of an understandable view. But what happened was they lost the chance to say, this is wrong. This is not fair. This is not an accurate characterization of our of, of our report, and, and so th- their decision not to answer, you know, not to review the letter, I think, redounded poorly on them. Plus, what they didn't know is that Barr was not going to release anything for a month after that uh, the, the 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 his press conference where he released his letter. So all anybody knew about the Mueller report from the day of Mueller, the, the day of Mueller's press, uh, the Barr's press conference was what Barr said about it, his minimizing it and frankly uh, misleading people about it. That was um, a, uh, I, 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 and, and the, 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 the um, conventional wisdom about the report hardened over that following month. And, and the fact that, that you know, the report wasn't out there basically led people to say, the president most of all, saying, oh, there was nothing here, this whole thing was a waste of time. When in fact, if you read the report, as I think not that many people did, you can see that there was actually a lot there.
0: As you said, the Washington Post had a bestseller, but probably not very many people read it.
1: Yes, uh, I, I don't know how many people remember uh, the Stephen Hawking book, A Brief History of Time. Uh, about black holes and whatnot, which, which sold an enormous number of copies, but, and including one to me, and I couldn't make heads or tails out of it, and I didn't finish reading it. I think it was sort of a similar phenomenon with the, uh, with the Mueller report. A lot of people bought it, but I don't know how many people made it through its 400 single space pages.
0: You know, when you get to um, an, another one of the president's attorneys, and I just didn't know anything about him, although I thought he looked like a very effective attorney, and that's Jay Sekulow. I didn't know about his earlier background.
1: Why you know, us- I, I just, you know, this is why I love writing books, is because you get to f- write about people like Jay Seculo. You know, what, what, and also, uh, I, I hate to sound like Father Time here, but when you cover law, as I have for, you know, now several decades, a lot of the same people turn up again and again. And uh, in my first book about the Supreme Court, The Nine, I have a whole chapter about Jay Seculo because Jay Seculo. Uh, He grew up in a Jewish family on Long Island, but when he moved to Atlanta, he became an evangelical Christian, and he started representing this group called Jews for Jesus, which he belonged to, which is a a Christian group, and he started litigating cases, which really revolutionized free speech law on behalf of of, of, um, religious organizations. He was a very successful Supreme Court advocate. He also became a leader in the conservative movement and wound up being hired by Trump, in uh, as, as sort of the constitutional lawyer in the Mueller investigation. He he wound up doing a lot more than just constitutional law because uh, the the president fired John Dowd. It was really up to I mean, um, Sekula was practically the only lawyer there for a while, but um, it was um, a um, I, I mean, he, he's just a great character and a very good lawyer, and he was the one from the very beginning saying, "Don't let Donald Trump talk to investigators," and his view ultimately prevailed.
0: So, in the book, you also talk a lot about how the President Trump and his advisors really have used—I g- I guess more President Trump—the p- power of the pardon. And John McClure says, is there any chance that Stone, who's had his sentence commuted, uh, will be resent to jail for his crime? So respond to John's question about uh, Stone and how has the president used the, his power of pardoning people?
1: Well, he, he, he uh, I mean, let me just answer the easy part. There's no chance that Roger Stone is going to prison. You know, his sentence was, comm- he was sentenced to prison, but his sentence was commuted. He wasn't pardoned. So uh, when you're pardoned, uh, like Patty Hearst was pardoned, um, you are no longer a convicted felon. It's like the case never happened. A commutation is somewhat different. Um, It means that the sentence is invalidated, including the fine, but uh, the conviction still stands. Uh, It's to a certain extent a semantic difference, uh, but it it is a difference. But what's clear is that Roger Stone is not going to prison. Um, In terms of the power of the pardon, you know, this is one of the most um, unreviewable and and significant powers any president has because the president doesn't have to check with anybody, doesn't have to review it with anybody, and uh, he can simply do it. And you know, a lot a lot of presidents have done it in controversial ways. George Herbert Walker Bush pardoned all the Iran Contra people as he was leaving the door. Uh, leaving the White House. Uh, Bill Clinton pardoned uh, Mark Rich, the fugitive financier, as well as his brother. Um, and uh, Donald Trump ha- has used the power of the pardon to reward his political uh, allies, whether it was Joe Arpaio, the sheriff uh, out in Phoenix, whether it was Dinesh D'Souza, the, uh, the conservative activist. He-, he-, he has used the power. Um, to uh, reward his, his allies, and I think what was particularly significant wa- about his use of the pardon and his threat to use of the pardon was that it led several people involved in the, the whole Russia investigation, like Michael Flynn, like Roger Stone, like uh, Paul Manafort, never to cooperate really with the Mueller investigation, never to do what people in white collar investigations usually do, which is flip, you know, plead guilty and agree to cooperate in hopes of of, of getting a lower sentence, because I think they recognized correctly that they were all gonna wind up getting pardoned
0: anyway. And as you write, because they had lied so often in different parts during the process, then their testimony really didn't have any uh, credibility and couldn't be used.
1: That, that, that's certainly true. That, that, that's and that's true. Uh, I mean, you know, the the whole, the whole basis of the Michael Flynn uh, convict, you know, guilty plea was uh, that he lied to, to the FBI. And and Roger Stone was also convicted of lying to congressional committees. And Paul Manafort was convicted of all manner of things. He hasn't been pardoned or had his sentence commuted either. Uh, but he's out of prison because of COVID worries.
0: Uh, we have a question about Nancy Pelosi. How do you think she'll go down and how she handled this in history? Uh, well, you has, know, the interesting uh,
1: thing about Nancy Pelosi is that um, you know, she is correctly seen as a very liberal uh, member of Congress from San, from San Francisco. But she is someone who is very concerned, above all, with preserving her Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. And she was very skeptical about impeachment almost up to the last minute uh, because she took the lesson from 1998 when the uh, Republican House of Representatives pushed forward on the Clinton impeachment, even though it was clear he was never gonna be convicted in the Senate. Uh, and, And she said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to expose particularly those members of my House, you know, conference um, to the political risk of voting for an impeachment that's never going to go anywhere anyway. And she was against impeachment throughout the Mueller investigation, even after uh, Robert Mueller uh, file, filed his, his report. And I think one of the most interesting parts uh, of, of my book is what flipped Nancy Pelosi. What flipped her was one thing in particular. Um, There were five members, uh, freshman members of the House of Representatives, uh, all of whom uh, were elected in Trump districts in uh, 2018, led by a woman named Abigail Spangbendler uh, from Virginia, former CIA agent who was elected in a very purple district. And um, after the Ukraine allegations came out, um, the five of them got together and it was really kind of moving because I think they, they, they really felt um, the weight of history on them. And, and they said, look, you know, we took oath to uphold the constitution and this is wrong, what the president did. This is just wrong. And they collaborated on an op-ed piece in the Washington Post that said, we now think that an impeachment investigation is appropriate. And the next day, Nancy Pelosi held a press conference and said, the House is going to conduct an impeachment inquiry. And, 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 you know, it it shows that, you know, Pelosi is a highly skilled political operative. And she was only willing to go forward when her vulnerable members said, it's okay, we think this is a matter of principle, we want to, we think this investigation should go forward.
0: So a few quick questions, we only have about uh, four minutes left. Uh, Gary wants to know, do you address George Soros's funding Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele's dossier?
1: Um, the, the answer is I do not address it because it didn't happen. Um, George Soros had nothing to do with it. it the the, the G, Fusion GPS was funded by first this, this Republican group, uh, these never Trumpers, and then they were founded by the Democrats. I mean, by, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, the George Soros had nothing to do with it.
0: Jeff, you know, there have been so many questions that are taking this sort of very far right m- movement. And, of course, you've written your book on the research that you've done. Why do you think there is right? I mean, this clearly is why we have such partisanship. How are we going to break through this in our country?
1: I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the, uh, the fracturing of the news media. You know, in, in 1974, when, um, when Richard Nixon was, was, was forced out of office, you know, you, you had uh, the three major networks, you had a, a law called the Fairness Doctrine um, that said they had to present balanced sides. Um, and, and, you know, people had theories about Walter Cronkite's uh, real political views, but I think it's safe to say, you know, that he was a pretty straight down the middle guy, same with Huntley Brinkley on, on NBC. You know, what happened with the rise of cable, uh, led by Rupert Murdoch, and Rupert Murdoch saw there was a tremendous business opportunity there, that um, there could be a conservative network and, and thus the birth of Fox News, which was a brilliant business idea. Um, you, you also have now, and, and that was really, I think, you know, the, the, the evident in the, in the Clinton impeachment. When you layer onto that, the um, internet, and especially Facebook, which I think is in many respects more important than cable news, where everybody, you know, millions and millions of people, far more than the number of people who watch cable news, get their news from Facebook. And the Facebook algorithm shows you what you wanna see. So, you know, if you're a conservative, you'll see Breitbart and Fox News. And if you're a liberal, you'll see, uh, you know, MSNBC and, and The Nation. We don't have a common set of facts anymore. And under the First Amendment, what are we gonna, you know, nobody's gonna tell Fox News to shut down. Nobody's gonna tell MSNBC to fire um, uh, Rachel Maddow. I mean, these, these people quite appropriately are exercising their First Amendment rights, but they are contributing to this extreme polarization, and, um, I don't see it ending, uh, anytime soon.
0: Well, that's a good segue to ask you to talk about the dedication in your book.
1: Um, the, the dedication in my book is to my fellow journalists. And, and there are really sort of two reasons for that. One is that um, this has been a terrible time for uh, the, um, the, the much of the journalism world for, for business reasons. I mean, the, the internet has all but destroyed um, the, uh, uh, the m- many newspapers in the country. Uh, you know, Here we are in Dallas you know, the Dallas Morning News, the, the Star-Telegram in Fort Worth, I mean, these used to be enormous newspapers, tremendously uh, influential in their communities. And, you know, the, the apps, the, the, the circulation has plunged, and even more significantly, advertising has plunged, and they have become really marginal businesses. And I, I just wanted to, I don't really have a solution to that, uh, but it's just been a, a, a scary time. Uh, from a business perspective. But
0: the other and reason- the virus hasn't helped either. Sorry? Um, the virus hasn't helped either. Well,
1: I mean, yes, that's true. But but the, the decline of newspapers long predates. Uh, long uh, predates I'm happy COVID. that someone
0: asked this question. Are you well, planning I, to- The other
1: reason I added, I, I just, you know, the, the president's words, fake news, enemies of the people. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's right. I'm proud to be a journalist. I think journalists are indispensable uh, to the flourishing of our democracy. And that's the other reason why I dedicated the book to our other, to my fellow journalists.
0: So I'm glad someone else asked this question. Are you writing, planning to write a sequel to The Nine?
1: Well, I did sort of write a sequel to The oh, Nine. But are you planning
0: <laughs> to do it with ADO. another one?
1: Uh, an, another one? You know, I'm um, I, I, I sure there are, there are writers out there who when they finish a big project, they think, boy, I can't wait to get started on another ordeal. <laughs> I am not one of them. I find these books totally They're emotionally not your, and physically exhausting.
0: They're not Doris I, Kearns Goodwin.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, well, but you know, you look at Doris's work, uh, whom I admire a great deal, they are spaced out by several years. Uh, yeah, she's, and, you know, she spends David, a
0: decade with each president that she writes about. Yeah, and,
1: and David McCullough, and, and you know, th- these are, you know, people I, I admire uh, a, a oh, great deal.
0: I want to thank you for spending an hour with us. And for those of you whose questions I did not read, uh, when we have Sarah Sanders in a few weeks, maybe I'll read them then. Keep on watching and listening to our program. And uh, Jeff, congratulations on your book and uh, continued, uh, continued good health to you and your family.
1: Thank you, Jim, and thank you to all the people who watched.
0: And remember, you can purchase a copy of Jeff's book uh, now at interabangbooks.com. 10% off, just type in DFW World.